0: I'm very excited. Um, Hal Holbrook is, he's not physically here with me. He's in Los Angeles. We're recording this on Tuesday evening. Hal Holbrook, of course, is an American film and stage actor. He's best known for his portrayal of Mark Twain, but he's also played Lincoln. He's played Deep Throat. He's played uh, a a U.S. senator. Uh, We're going to talk about all of those things. He's won every major theater award that you can win, been nominated for an Oscar, won an Emmy, and he will celebrate a major birthday. We don't have to tell you which birthday. It's a birthday with a zero in it. We'll leave it at that. Uh, he'll celebrate his birthday here in Hartford uh, with a performance of Mark Twain Tonight, the solo show that he has done for 61 years. He has been Mark Twain longer than Samuel Clements was Mark Twain. He's done it in 20 countries. He's done it behind the Iron Curtain. He's done it in all 50 states. He'll be back in Hartford at the Bush. Uh, To do this on Tuesday, February seventeenth. So, first of all, welcome to the show. I I am genuinely excited and honored to to get a chance to talk to you.
1: Well, that sounds exhausting when you read off all those, (laughs) (laughs) all all those, uh, whatever you call them, credits.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure collectively it may have been exhausting. Before we get to (laughs) before we get to Mark Twain, I, I want to talk about some of the. Uh, the other work, the first time I saw you, I was I was a high school student and you were in a series, in fact, called The Bold Ones. I'm almost certain that that's the first time I saw Hal Holbrook. And you played a senator that some people have described as kind of a fusion of Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy. Who was that character to you?
1: Well, I resisted uh, identifying who was in my mind all the time I did the uh... Did the uh, role of people uh, thought I was. I had Bobby Kennedy in mind, and frankly, I did. This this senator was a fighter, and he was not going down the predicted road, and he was fighting against the problems and corruption he saw in uh,
0: government. So it's so odd what we remember. So here's a memory that I have, and it might, like so many memories from the past, be wrong. But I have a memory that there was a scene in that series where you were reunited with your wife on the series after a long absence and that you had the longest kiss, the longest marital kiss that I've ever seen on television. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a a scene that you remember doing? My gosh,
1: I don't know how I could have forgotten that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe we did, but... uh... That wasn't foremost in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we took on the Kent State killings. Mm-hmm. We took on corruption in government. I was playing a senator from Illinois. The ironic part of it was, not taught me a great deal about the Hollywood business, because it was my first time out there, uh, I was doing quite well on Broadway, playing roles, and they invade me to come out there, and I... I did the series, and we uh, won six Emmys <laughs> out of the eight we were nominated for and were canceled in one year.
0: That's right. It was a short run, but an interesting one. And now I want to ask you about the second time that I saw you. The second time that I saw you was in a program that really was unbelievably path-blazing at its moment. It was, it was a I think, a made-for-TV movie called That Certain Summer. Tell people about that certain summer.
1: Well, it was the first time that homosexuality, as we called it in those days, were portrayed as just normal human beings. I mean, regular people who were trying to have a life. Uh, Marty Sheen and I played uh, the two uh, gay guys. To make a long story short, I I had to try to tell my son (laughs) about it. Uh, about our relationship and who I was, etc. And uh, it was a very uh, heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching kind of uh, confrontation and difficulty.
0: Were you at all nervous about playing that role? In other words, this was a time in which... No, I was
1: not. I don't get nervous doing contentious things. I like to do stuff that will bother people. I don't like to sit back and do the same old damn thing. I like to get people (laughs) uncomfortable and aroused about things because I think we take our lives way too easy. And I think that's one of the basic troubles with the country today. We're so afraid to... uh, Get up on our hind legs and and assert ourselves without shooting each other down. That we're going nowhere.
0: Was that a difficult program to get on the air? I mean, was there resistance from the network or, or from anyone? I mean, no. This the head of the
1: network was very strong for it. He took a chance. You know, the the funny thing is, when I turned the script down when I first got it, people think I turned it down because of the homosexuality. It's, it's not true. I turned it down because I didn't think there was enough going on, and they didn't. <laughs> nothing happened mm-hmm. really. I mean, you know, nothing dramatic. My second wife and I were driving out to our place in Amagansett, Long Island, and on the Long Island freeway, she said, "What about that script that Monty Johnson sent you today?" And I said, "Well, I told her about it." What well, she said, "Well, describe the story. Why'd you turn it down?" I said, "Well, I didn't think much was going on," so I I told her the story. And we're driving along Long Island Freeway. And uh, after a while, she said, uh, Holbrook, (laughs) this is not bad. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, let, let me continue. So I continued. And finally, I got to near the end. And she said, Holbrook. Are you nuts? (laughs) I said, yeah, I think maybe I am. She said, when we get to the house, you've got to pick up the phone and call Monty Johnson immediately and hope the the role hasn't been given to somebody else. And that's what I did.
0: (laughs) My memory from that, too, is that Hope Lang played your wife. Yeah, Hope did. Yeah, yeah. There's one line that has stayed with me. She's angry at you, and she says, if it were a woman, I could compete with her but she can't compete with Martin Sheen. Yeah, yeah. Just running through some of these epic roles of yours, we have to talk about Deep Throat. Now, I read somewhere that Robert Redford wanted you to be Deep Throat because he felt as though Deep Throat should be somebody with real stature, an actor with real stature. Do you remember much about what you were told at the time that you got that part?
1: Well, I turned that down, too. (laughs) (laughs) All my good stuff I turned down. And Bob Redford was a friend of ours. Carol, my second wife, went to school with him. And so, so he came to the house and tried to talk to me about uh, this role because uh, he didn't want me to turn it down. And I kept saying, Bob, nobody will see me. I'm in the dark. <laughs> I said, there's nothing to it. It's a tiny role. And he kept saying, Al, believe me, this role will be, will be remembered better than any other in the film. I said, come on, Bob, give it up. And he said, no, I know, I know, I I know, I know I'm right. And, you know, he was right. So I, I said, okay, I'll do it. And so we did it in the dark. And, uh, you know, down in the lowest level of the uh, Century City parking garage, which was still being built, was full of construction dust. And I had to stand against a post. And Gordon <laughs> Willis, I think, was the, DP, great cameraman, and I couldn't move more than an eighth of an inch because hmm. his camera was catching, I think it was the right edge of my eyes, the bone under my eye, you know, <laughs> it was lit, and I couldn't move. And I just I stand there for hours doing it <laughs> over and over, and then Bob would go and talk to the director and then come back and do it again. I must have taken 20 shots of that thing. My conception of the role was built mostly on personal feeling about it because, as I remember, I don't think they told me too much because I didn't know who he was or said they did not know who he was. I felt it was important for Deep Throat to be somebody who was doing something beneath him. I thought it was important for him to be a dignified man who'd served maybe more than one president of both sides, was more of a, of a person serving the country, and he had to make this horrible decision, and it was a terrible decision because I had done a lot of research when I played the senator, and I understood some of the machinations and the, the workings of, of Washington, and you, you do not betray the president if you're working for him mm. or on his team. And so this was a terrible thing this man had to do, and he made a decision based upon his loyalty to the country rather than loyalty to the the president. I thought he he should have cufflinks and be well-dressed and feel that he was totally out of his environment in this dirty garage Mm -hmm. doing a dirty thing. (laughs) And that was the underlying emotion that I tried to get across.
0: Now, you would have been within your rights, to ask Woodward and Bernstein to tell you who Deep Throat was. And at no, that time, of course, it was no, a big mystery. Did, did no, you consider that?
1: No, they, they said they did not know or, or, if you know, you just didn't ask. It was really a big secret everywhere, everywhere. And whoever knew it, I don't know who knew it, but everybody said they didn't know who it was. It didn't matter. You know, the point is, see, everybody wanted to know. When it came out that what's-his-name was was Deep Throat. You know, everybody, oh, gee whiz, what did you think of that? It made me angry because I was doing a CBS interview. They caught me in a hallway somewhere. (laughs) I got mad at the interviewer. I said, look, the point here is not who Deep Throat was. Don't you get it? The point is what he did. The point is what he did for our country. That is what you're supposed to get out of this Not who did it. This is not Disneyland. This is America having a tough time.
0: And I think also not knowing who he was gave you a certain amount of freedom to do the work of imagination that you're describing, the the notion. I mean, I think you came pretty close, too. I think Mark Felt probably was the kind of guy who thought this was beneath him, that he was forced to do it. But he kind of held his nose in that process.
1: Well, I, I think anybody would. You know, Colin, I mean, let's face it. If you were the guy, what would you be thinking on?
0: Yeah, it's hard to imagine. But then that's your job as an actor. That's what you have to ask yourself, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that was, to me, what was important. What was important? When I do a role, I take it very seriously. I don't just take it as an actor doing a party look at me look at me I try to figure out what the role is about and if it has some I hate the word message but if it has something to give to the people who are watching something more than just oh look at that he's portraying you know whatever if it has something a message of some kind that's important to us as people human beings that's what I want to get to if I can you know, I think most people try it. Most actor, actors try to do that.
0: I sense that that's still pretty much the way you approach this job. You're still a working actor. I mean, you do movies, you do television. I don't happen to watch Sons of Anarchy, but I know that you you had a recurring role on that one. And My guess is that you still- I love prepare. those people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love those people on that show.
0: <laughs> what do you love about them?
1: They look Shakespearean. The way they dressed, you know, they had that kind of a a heavy jacket with the arms cut off. I mean, the, the motors, the whole thing. It was very Shakespearean in in the feeling. I enjoyed those actors very much, and Katie, I enjoyed. I played her father.
0: You have occasionally played in that particular role, as I understand it, was a, a person who, at least at times in his life, had been a not very nice person. And you've played some other roles, people who were not very nice people. I think in one of the Dirty Harry movies, you're somebody who's a not very nice person. I sense in real life, just reading your memoir and 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 having watched you, that you are a nice person. So, is there I'm some not a nice person?
1: You're not a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> You should ask uh, some of the people <laughs> who have had to deal with me through life. I'm a hard-driving person, boy.
0: Well, hard-driving is one thing, and then, but it seems to me your motives are good, right? But when you play a bad person, how how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare to be a villain, an evil person?
1: That's a very good question, Colin. Most people think you play a villain that you're playing a villain. Mm-hmm. You do not. A villain does not know he's a villain. Right. A person who is acting in a villainous or crummy way does not see it that way. He thinks he's doing right. So you don't play a bad guy. You play a guy who thinks he's good doing hmm. a bad thing, bad by other people's measurement. That's the way you approach a so-called villain.
0: Then Shakespeare kind of gives us the template for that idea. Oh, I mean, Shakespeare, yeah. yeah. The yeah. Richard the 3rd doesn't think he's a villain. I mean, he is. No,
1: no. I mean, you don't play uh, Richard the Third like a villain although boy that's a (laughs) that'd be a tough job (laughs) you know i did shylock at the shakespeare theater in uh the second time i did it at shakespeare theater in washington i did a very a lot of deep research at the jewish uh, university in uh in uh brentwood in Mm. in los angeles in the library and i was really i tell you pal I got an eyeful. Mm -hmm. Anybody who goes into the research of what we did, and I say we because we're all responsible for what we did and what our ancestors did, you cannot get out of it. People try to avoid, you know. And what we did to the Jews in the Middle Ages back there in the 16th century, 15th century is just You can't describe it. I wouldn't describe it to you on this program. Mm -hmm. It is terrible, what we did, terrible. And the dishonor that we cast upon them, the way we treated them like dogs, it was unbelievable. And so anybody who thinks Shylock is not going to go for the kill is crazy. If somebody did that to my daughter, took my daughter away that way and treated me the way they did, I would cut their heart out and I would not kneel down and go, "Ah, poor me. And I played Shylock as a tough, deeply wounded man.
0: Well, this is a perfect segue into Twain, who I think try, does try to get us all to see our complicity. So why don't we take a break and we'll come back with more of Hal Holbrook after this. i Admir- Hi, this is Colin to commemorate the passing of Hal Holbrook. We're airing an interview I did with him in 2015. We're back with Hal Holbrook. He'll be in town on February 17th. That's his birthday. I won't say which birthday, but he'll be performing uh, Mark Twain tonight. As he has so many other times, thousands of times now, Uh, he'll be with us to do it in Twain City uh, at the Bushnell Center for the Performing Arts. That's on February 17th. He's talking to me right now. One of your worries when you first, or at least early in the time that you did Mark Twain, when you first did him in New York, I think it was off-Broadway, you got terrific reviews, and you have recounted a moment of panic, thinking, wait a minute this really could take over my life. Uh, I want to be a diverse actor. I want to play Shylock. I want to play Deep Throat. I want to do all these things. But you, you seem to sense, even at that moment, so early in this process, that Twain could be a big thing. How did you handle that? How did you make sure that you could be Mark Twain and do all these other things?
1: When I ended the run off-Broadway in New York, I was a totally unknown actor before I opened in this little tiny off-Broadway theater. Brooks Atkinson, the critic on the New York Times, didn't even come to the opening. He sent Arthur Gelb. He said, some young kid is going to do Twain at 70. I want you to go cover him. And uh, Arthur Gelb, along with every other critic in town, gave me a tremendous review. I mean, it was a star-making review. It shocked me out of my mind. (laughs) I had played all over this country and little tiny places and schools and places all over and no account whatsoever. Nobody ever treated me like uh, I was particularly special and all of a sudden the New York critics whom I was frightened to death of when I walked on that stage that night gave me a career. I was scared because I didn't do this with the idea of going behind a mask forever and never being an actor in other roles mm-hmm. and my first thought was how the heck am i going to get out of this now i'm <laughs> trapped i'm trapped i had a job finally i i had a way to make some money for my for my family my little children but i was trapped and not long after that i was on the road i think i was heading for albuquerque new mexico and i said to myself "Holbrook, listen." You're in a very shaky business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're a big deal today. Tomorrow you could be nobody. Nobody, kid. So hang on to this thing. You've been handed a pot of gold. Mine it. Use it. Use it to protect yourself, your family, and everything. And try to use it in a way that you don't do it all the time. And you try to look for other things to do. But don't give this up. Hang on to it. And I did. Kyle and I, I hung on to it. I always booked it every year. I never missed a year, but I started doing other things. It took a while, but I started doing other things. First thing that really hit good was uh, I did Abe Lincoln, Illinois, Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, the Phoenix Theater. And when I played a role like that, I didn't just play it like me. I mean, I spent hours making up for him. You know, Mm -hmm. I looked exactly like Abraham Lincoln, and Harold Clerman, who was a critic on The Nation, maybe one of the finest critics and one of the best theater men in, in New York, ended a paragraph in which he described my performance with the words which meant the world to me, Colin. This is what I was praying for. He said, this young man is an actor. This young man is an actor. That's what I wanted. I never forgot Harold for doing that. From then I, I started to just slowly take off.
0: You were certainly known for a long time. That You were probably the person best known for portraying Lincoln. And so I assume you went to the movie theater and saw Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, I was in it. <laughs> you, that's right. You're in it. That's right. I'd forgotten. So what was that like to watch? I mean, I, I, Daniel D. Lewis is so much like you in a lot of ways, that same sense of, of, of intense preparation. Yeah. I mean, we know that when he did My Left Foot, he made people carry him around the set, even when he wasn't on camera. So similar to Holbrook in some ways. Yeah. How did you feel? How, how did you feel about his Lincoln?
1: Very respectful, Colin. Mm-hmm. He is a very fine, fine actor. Just as you say, he's a kind of an actor, a person another actor can really admire for his dedication to his work. And the selections he makes are not frivolous. They're important to him. And he puts a great deal of time into study. And his, his Lincoln, the Lincoln he created was simply wonderful. He was doing a Lincoln in the last four months of his life under tremendous stress, trying to get the amendment, the 13th Amendment against slavery passed. He knew he could not end the war and still get the amendment passed. He knew he had to get the amendment passed before he ended the war, and he could have ended the war. And that was the great struggle for him at that time. I thought Daniel did a terrific job. Just And working with Steven Spielberg was, I would say, a beautiful experience. That man... He's so kind to his actors, so thoughtful to his actors. He's so good at what he does. He's so well prepared. He surrounds himself with people he's worked with before. They all know exactly what he wants. There's no strain on the set. And I've never been on a set where there was more authenticity everywhere you looked, whether it was the way somebody's hair was or beard to furniture or whatever. It was unbelievable authenticity. And Daniel Daniel did something that I I can't do. I mean, I'm not made that way. Uh, We were told when we got to the set the first time that every actor would be addressed not by his own name, but by the name of his character. So I had to address Daniel as Lincoln. Well, (laughs) I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so this was a bit of a strain to me. I had to kind of... Check myself all the time, and I wonder, "Hey, Dad!" No, 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 and so I had sat next to him. I think what was the, the Academy Awards. He and his wife—his uh, wife was the daughter of Arthur Miller, whom I worked with many times—and. And so when when I finished my uh, my job, my, uh Stephen said, uh, "Daniel's waiting in this waiting room. He would go off by himself constantly. You know, he didn't he didn't talk to other actors. And he was in this room. He'd like to say goodbye to you. So I went in, and and I went up and give him a hug, and he gave me a hug and all and." Uh, and I didn't call him uh, Daniel, but but all the way out, I turned and I said, Oh, by the way, give your wife my regards. And I thought, Oh, my gosh, I should not have said that. <laughs>
0: We sort of skipped over a couple of things in, in telling your story, and I want to come back to at least one of them. You know, you, you talked about some of the big breaks for you early in your career. And one of the big breaks that we didn't talk about, it's something that everybody in your business at that moment in time hopes to get. Actually, I can make it come back to you a little bit just by playing the introduction you got that night. Here it is. The D.M. through downtown. I saw him downtown, club down there. He did an amazing impression of Mark Twain. He's a Mark Twain scholar, actually. His name is Hal Holbrook, and here he is as Mark Twain. Now, in order to get that chance, (laughs) you had to go to Sullivan's apartment, right? Did you have to go there and tell tell that story? (laughs) A friend of mine knew a
1: friend of Ed Sullivan's and somehow got him to come to this little cabaret, this little nightclub down in Greenwich Village on Grove Street that I was performing in. I was doing Twain in, in the curve of, of a curve of a, of a baby grand piano, and Ed sat right in front of me. And then he asked me to come see him at his hotel the next day, the Park Van Dome, I think. I said, where is that? He said, well, you know, I, I didn't know where it was. So, you know, it was very high class stuff. So I went to his place. And the doorman even smiled at me. I was so astonished because it was Park Avenue. I had no, I had nothing, and his wife greeted me at the door and said that uh, Ed will will see you in the living room. He's waiting for you. And she called him Ed and called me Hal. I couldn't believe it. So when in. Then I sat down in a silk brocaded chair, and uh, he asked me a few questions, and then he said. Uh, what about Twain, Hal? You want to do a little bit of it for me? So I did a little bit for him, and he said, uh, can you cut that down to six minutes? <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, cut it down to six minutes, it'll ruin it. And then I thought to myself, Holbrook, are you nuts? <laughs> Never mind, just <laughs> say yes. So I said, yeah, I think I, I think I could do that, Ed. How much do you want, Hal? No, he said, uh, who is is your agent, Hal? I said, I don't have an agent, Mr. Sullivan. He said, you don't have an agent? I said, no, sir. How much do you want? Now, Colin, until that moment, I had never thought of being paid. It never occurred to me about being paid. That wasn't what was in my mind. So now I'm thinking... Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, 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 let's see. Uh, the The Beatles, uh the, the guy from Memphis swings his hips. Uh, they get a thousand. Oh, that's too much. 1000 a thousand. No, Holbrook, that's the right. Uh, well maybe too f- No, don't go too low, Holbrook. Don't don't So I'm thinking all these things that Sullivan's looking at me. <laughs> Finally, I said uh uh would uh, uh, uh would $500 be all right? <laughs> And he said, "You got a deal, Hal." And then I thought, "Oh, I should have made it higher."
0: <laughs> I could have gotten you seven fifty,
1: <laughs>
0: but I would have taken fifteen percent, so it would have out the same. And the irony there is that for almost anybody to be on Ed Sullivan at that point in American history, the next day you would have been mobbed on the street anywhere you went, except nobody knew what you looked like, right? Nobody knew
1: what I looked like. I was, uh, just for the people who are listening, I was doing, at that time, a makeup that took over three hours. It got to be four hours later. I mean, I was doing intricate makeup, and nobody could tell who I was. They thought I was an old man. I was only 34 years old.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm sitting here in Hartford, a few blocks from Twain's house, and, and I'm also sitting very near... The house of a man named William Gillette, uh, who was an actor, he actually did impersonate Twain I mean just based on he knew Twain so he had that, he had a little advantage there but the the thing that he was the most famous for, as you no doubt know, was playing Sherlock Holmes. Similar to you, he played Sherlock Holmes all over the world. And the things that he came to emphasize about Sherlock Holmes became what really what people knew about Sherlock Holmes. Things that Conan Doyle never put in the stories. Our idea of Sherlock Holmes is shaped as much, if not more, by Gillette than by Conan Doyle. And I wonder if you sometimes think about that vis-a-vis you and Twain, that the things that you've chosen to emphasize about Mark Twain are now our idea of Mark Twain, that, that not only has, have you shaped him on stage, but our idea of who Mark Twain is, is really Hal Holbrook playing Mark Twain.
1: It'll probably come as somewhat of a shock to people, because I know I'm supposed to think differently. I don't have that sense of ownership with Mark Twain. To me, he is an American original, and he does not belong to me. He belongs to everybody. I only have a little share of him, and that is the absolute truth. Uh, As for Gillette, uh, Mark Twain, I believe, gave uh, William Gillette the money to enable him to go to New York and be an actor, something Mm. like that. There was some story like that circulating. I saw William Gillette Mm. on his last tour. But I saw him when I was a student at Suff- Suffield Academy. They brought us to see uh, William Gillette. I was, um, I was seven years old when mm. they sent me to Suffield. So uh, I was there in 32, 33, 34, 35. And uh, I went to Hartford with a group and saw William Gillette. And uh, what's the one with the big nose, the famous? Uh... Cyrano. Yeah, Cyrano. I mm. saw him in Cyrano. On his last tour.
0: Wow. That's something.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I, I was able to do that. I had no idea at the time that I would ever want to be an actor or would become an actor, but I did see William Gillette, and mm. I'm proud of it.
0: I want to talk about who Twain is to you. I would guess, I mean, David Bradley in the, in the documentary about you says that you're the foremost Twain scholar in the world in addition to being the, the actor who portrays him. So this is a guy you have researched and researched meticulously. Do you feel as though you know him? Do you know, do you know the real man? Or do you, do you know the persona that he chose to share with, with everybody?
1: Well, you have to dig for the real man behind any mask that he might have put on if you're going to portray the character. You don't just portray the mask. You portray the real man. And when you do the kind of research that I have done, which most actors don't have to do because they just play the role, Mm -hmm. I create the material. That is to say, I create the arrangement of material. I read his stuff. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> I go over it at night in my head. I, I've i been reading it for years. I just find it fascinating. The depth of understanding he had uh, of the human race and our shaky condition and of our country. And uh, I select, uh, when I do a show, I have lots and lots of material, uh, five or six hours of it. I mean, in the last year, I put on over an hour of, of, of new material on the show. Never been on, never been on before. I put on the, uh, I'm doing that, uh, the feud number between the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons in Huckleberry Finn. It's a very powerful number about gun violence, really. People using guns and killing each other. I mean, it has something to say, like a lot of his stuff, in an oblique way about what's going on in our country today. Um, I put on another number about uh, Twain's take on the Christian Bible and our treatment of the Christian Bible, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And I love digging into Twain's material and I never update it. from the very beginning, when I first started putting this show together in a, in a little vestibule at a $79-a-month apartment in New York, in a dark little hallway at a desk, never knowing. If this stuff would ever, I mean, fly, I mean, good grief. Some Mm. guy wrote all this. I'm supposed to get up and say it. I'm frightened to get in front of an audience by by myself. But I made a decision then, and I've never, never changed it. I never update his material. I never do anything to violate the impression that I am Mark Twain on the stage. That's why I do a four-hour makeup or did. I don't need four hours anymore. That's why I take so much time with it, so much meticulous care with it. That's why I'm so careful with the material to try to be legitimate and honest and not rewrite it for my own purposes. And I just do so much looking and looking and reading that it's easy to find stuff that sounds like he was talking about what's happening today in the papers because we haven't changed a bit. Now, you find that ridiculous. You'll say, oh, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes, I do know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about or thinking if you don't know that. We have not changed a bit. In the last hundred years, either in our political shenanigans or in our religious shenanigans. And Mark Twain put his finger right on it.
0: Um, I want to give you another chance to take a break and have uh, a sip of water. Uh, We'll come back for our final segment. This interview is flying by way too fast. There's so many things I want to talk about. And we're running out of time with Hal Holbrook. So let's take that break. We'll be back after this. I get up in the morning I drink a cup of coffee I look out of the
1: window Try to get it started.
0: I turn it all over, I plow it all under. I plant
1: them in the springtime, I pick them in the summer.
0: Hi, this is Colin to commemorate the passing of Hal Holbrook. We're airing an interview I did with him in 2015.
1: When I'm 90 years old, I plan to be performing my one-woman Harriet Beecher Stowe show on the permanent Mars colony. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion
0: Wolf. And now, back to Colin. We're back with Hal Holbrook. He's going to be in Hartford on February 17th. It'll be his birthday. He'll be doing Mark Twain tonight uh, at the Bushnell. And uh, to benefit, we should say, the Mark Twain House and Museum. I'm going to play a clip uh, of of the one thing we haven't heard. We've heard Ed Sullivan introducing you, but we haven't heard you doing uh, Twain. So let's hear just a little bit of that.
1: Man is a marvel he is. He's invented himself a heaven. And emptied into it all the nations of the earth, all in one common jumble, and all of them on an equality (laughs) absolute. They have to be brothers. (laughs) They have to mix together and pray together and harp and hosanna together whites, Negroes, Jews, everybody. There are no distinctions. Yet down here on earth all the nations hate each other and fight each other, and every one of them persecutes the Jew. And yet every pious person adores that heaven and wants to get into it. He really does. Now, isn't that marvelous? <laughs> and when when he's in a holy rapture, he thinks he thinks that if he could only get up there, he would take that whole populace to his heart and hug. And hug, and hug. I wonder if God invented man because he was disappointed in the monkey.
0: I have so many questions I want to ask you about this. The first one, I guess, is that, you know, some of the material that you do is Twain's written material, not necessarily material that he would have performed or, or lectured on. And and I sometimes wonder if some of the things that you're saying Uh, as Twain, are things that he might not have been comfortable uh, confronting an audience with? Or was he just utterly fearless? Would he say anything in any environment?
1: Well, I think you have a good point there, but it's a different world we're living in today. We can say a lot of different things we couldn't, uh, we were constrained to say then. For example, Mark Twain loved his wife, Olivia, really loved her she was a very uh, solid Christian lady. Mark Twain was a person who questioned things. He probably was born with a question mark in his head. That's what made him who he is. So they had some differences of opinion, to put it simply. There were things that in those days, you have to use your head about this. You don't excuse stuff. You don't avoid stuff. You find a way to say it, nevertheless. But there were things in those days that he would not have come out with. There are things that I can come out with today, such as what you just uh, played. But he wrote about them. He wrote about them. I mean, for example, you would be shocked, I'm sure, and most people listening will be shocked. To hear that in the Gilded Age, the book he wrote in 1872, published, 1872, he talked about lobbyists in Washington, and he called the lobbyists our invisible government in Washington, and therein lies a very big story, because they are not elected. They're working for corporations. They're making six figure salaries. Do you know what the, what's his name from uh, Virginia, who was defeated, much to everyone's astonishment, in the last election, who was number two behind Beamer in, in the Senate? Cantor? Mm hmm. You know what he said the next day? What? He's going to be a lobbyist. That's right,
0: that's right, yep.
1: All right, there you got it. Now you put your finger on something very vital in this country because if you can pay your way into the favor of the American people, you have bypassed something important. I don't think the Founding Fathers meant that this document was for the rich people. The document was we the people, we the people. Not we the rich people, but we the people. Abraham Lincoln ended one of the greatest speeches ever made by a, by a, a statesman in history with the words of the people, by the people. For the people shall not perish from the earth. You do not emphasize the preposition in a sentence. You emphasize the subject, the people. Mm. Now, if that doesn't give us a message that's clear and untrammeled, about what our founding fathers what our great statesmen tried to tell us about this country and why it was formed for us uh we're not going to we're not going to get anything we're not going to we're not going to learn anything we're just going to go down the same road if you want to if you want to really get an education read uh the bully pulpit about Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. It was a great uh, revelation to me. Teddy Roosevelt was a reformer. He was a dyed in wood Repo- world Republican, came from a Republican family. So was William Howard Taft. Very strong Republicans, and they were, especially Roosevelt, rebels who fought against the trusts. The takeover of our country by Standard Oil, the railway interests, J.P. Morgan, everybody. They fought that. They were heroes. They would not be heroes today to a certain segment of the United States. And something has gone wrong. And the problem is, I worry about it all the time because... I, I want. I don't try to speak to the choir when I do Mark Twain and select material. I don't speak to the choir like some of these people on HBO or whatever. I, I want to speak to the people. I've been traveling this country, little tiny towns, Laredo, you know, Fargo, North Dakota. I, I, I don't go to the big cities. I go to the people, and I know they don't all think the same. And you can't talk to them like you were from New York or Hollywood. And how you talk to them and how you select material from Twain and how you edit it together is very challenging and very important to me because I want to try my best to make people, to ask them to think a little bit, to think, to think. We have a country now that is angry at each other. We have a democracy of people, all of us, in this boat together, who are angry at each other. And that is just a terrible shame. We cannot move forward if we're angry at each other. It's a democracy of the people, for the people. By the people and we have to remember that we have to give way to it we can't keep getting angry at each other because we will never get anything done if we do and we're living in a very dangerous world we're living in a very dangerous world that is breaking apart all around us And we got to come together and remember who we are and not go fighting each other this way because it just doesn't work. And democracy is based on the idea that people are supposed to have different ideas and be able to express them. And we elected this young man who's black six years ago by the largest number of votes ever given to an American president. The largest number of votes ever given to an American president, an electoral vote of 365, which is as close to a landslide as you want to get. And the very next day, the party that was against them said that their main purpose for the next four years was going to be to get rid of them. To get rid of them in a democracy. There's something wrong with that. And I only mention it not to blame people, but I mention it as an example of how far off the track we have gone. We've let this train called America slip off the tracks and we got to get back on again.
0: Well, that may be the perfect place for us to end, although I have uh, this other whole raft of questions, but uh, we only had an hour. Hal Holbrook, maybe uh, you and I can make an agreement that we'll have one more conversation uh, before the end of the world, because there are so many things I'd love to ask you about. (laughs) But it's been such an honor to visit with you today. You certainly have uh, shaped my life like a, a lot of other people's, and we very much look forward to spending your birthday with you in Hartford on February 17th. Thank you, Colin.
1: Sometimes at night you look like a long white train Winding your way away from me River I've never
0: seen the sea